everyone. Welcome back to It All Starts Here. This is a podcast focusing on the education and communication of topics in reproductive science and women's health. I'm your host, Olivia Moyer, and we are here at the Institute for Women's Health here in London at UCL. And today we're going to be talking about a period that is often kind of overlooked because um, when it comes to reproduction, socialization will often focus on two main areas, which are, you know, either getting pregnant, being pregnant, or not getting pregnant. So, um, but there's more to it. And it's important to educate on and consider the additional areas in between and the seemingly tiny details that are a part of these topics. Because when it comes to reproduction, it's often those tiny details that can go on to make a huge difference in terms of pregnancy outcomes and maternal health. So today I have with me Dr. Jenny Hall, who is a clinical associate professor and NIHR advanced fellow here at the Institute for Women's Health. She is a public health consultant with an extensive background in research using quantitative, qualitative, and psychometric methodologies to investigate various topics in maternal health and epidemiology. Um, her work aims to improve health and social outcomes for women of reproductive age around the world and most recently has been focused on understanding more about pregnancy planning and the benefits of preconception health or health before pregnancy, which is really this area that, as I said, is often overlooked and we're going to focus on today. So it's such a unique opportunity to be able to speak and hear from you today on this topic, given your mixed methods approach to science and specifically how you've taken the opportunity to investigate these scientific areas from a public health perspective. Um, I've really been looking forward to hearing about this topic from your perspective, given your massively broad background of different science, and also getting this global health perspective from you, given your research and work around the world. So um, let's jump right into it. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your current research and why this is something you're so keen on investigating. Where did it all start for you? Great. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I've been in, interested in reproductive and maternal health from a very broad perspective for a long time. So as far back as a medical student, um, I did a dissertation on HIV using a human rights lens. Um, but I think for me, the main thing that drew me in is the kind of social justice aspect um, of maternal health. So maternal mortality, it is one of the biggest inequities, probably the biggest inequity around the world. 99% of maternal deaths happen in low and middle income countries. And just with what we already know, we could prevent probably at least three quarters of them. Um, but also, just thinking about within the UK, we, we now see massive inequalities um, in our certain ethnic groups or people from um, more deprived backgrounds. They can have a three to five times increased risk of maternal mortality. Uh, and, and there's no good reason for that. I think that's kind of what drew me to this area in the first place. And then as I was sort of learning about maternal mortality, I came across this shocking statistic that almost half of pregnancies worldwide are unplanned. So there are literally tens of thousands of women dying every year from pregnancies that they didn't want to have in the first place. And I guess so. with my public health hat on, prevention is always better than cure. So I then started to um, think about research and how we could understand more about unplanned pregnancy and what the adverse outcomes were. And, and that's where I did my PhD uh, in Malawi, looking at 
whether unplanned pregnancies had poorer outcomes um, in a, a rural area in Malawi. Uh, and finding that um, my research and other evidence showing that they are associated with increased risk of the baby being born too soon, uh, having a low birth weight, uh, and also things like depression for the mum after birth. Uh, and those are just the short term. There's also the other longer term consequences for the child's health and growth and development, their education, um, the impacts on the rest of the family and the other children's and then out onto society. So like really big impacts. So then still thinking about prevention, public health, I'm like, OK, well, how can we help people avoid the pregnancies that they don't want? Um, but also recognising that unplanned pregnancies are always going to happen to some extent. Uh, so how can we um, work with people who have an unplanned pregnancy to try and reduce their risk of, of adverse outcomes? And that's what then led to my NHR fellowship, which is what I'm just kind of currently um, wrapping up. Um, so there I've been doing two things, working with people um, and healthcare professionals about how we can better identify what people are thinking about with regards to a future pregnancy. So we can either help them avoid that, uh, if they don't want a pregnancy through contraception or starting these conversations about how you might think about planning and preparing for a pregnancy so that you can be in the best health before pregnancy and then also working um, in antenatal care to detect who's currently experiencing an unplanned pregnancy and work out how we can better support them to pri- try and prevent some of those adverse outcomes um, and I think the key uh, gap that we've identified here is that we either have services for contraception to help you not be pregnant, or we have our maternity services when you are pregnant, and that bit in the middle where you're thinking about and planning and preparing for pregnancy is completely missing. Uh, and the women in my research, particularly in the qualitative research, really felt that gap. Um, and I think this is really important because if if you don't know, if we aren't helping people understand that there are things that you can and in some cases should do to prepare for pregnancy, then you don't. Even if you're planning to become pregnant, you may not prepare because you don't know that there are things that you could or should be doing, like taking folic acid before you become pregnant. So yeah, that's kind of where I am now. That's so cool. <clears throat> and you know, I, I that really resonates with me because a lot of my research um, that I've been doing has been focusing on that area of sort of prevention. You know, obviously focusing on different elements, but um, something that is often conveyed to us is prevention is the best form of medicine. Um, and that's just really rings true, I think. Um, so it's really interesting to hear about that. Um, and I think sort of what I'm getting is that when people think of getting pregnant, um, and you'll know more about this, but they maybe just, they go for it. Um, and I don't really maybe worry too much about the things as, for example, folic acid to consider um, in advance of getting pregnant. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a really common conception. And I think that's true for some people. Um, some people are planners, and I guess I'd count myself in there, and they will research and they will think about um, and find out what they need to do. Um, but the irony is they're probably the, the most healthy people anyway, who probably don't actually need to do that much. Um, but it's the problem of unknown unknowns. If you don't know, if you have no idea that there are things that you could or should do before pregnancy, then the decision to become pregnant and then becoming pregnant, you, d- you don't know that there's a bit that you're missing. Um, people will often say, oh, well, when I'm pregnant, I will do X, Y, and Z. I will stop drinking. I will stop smoking. I will lose weight. But that's generally not enough. Most of the evidence is suggesting that 
doing things once you're pregnant doesn't really make a difference. Um, I mean, for some things, obviously, it does. Stopping smoking at any point makes a difference. But if you're going into pregnancy, and we know, for example, in this country, at least half of our population of reproductive age are overweight or obese. So a lot of people going into pregnancy who are overweight, that's not something you can change during pregnancy. And people may not know that being overweight can make it harder for you to get pregnant. It can make it take a longer time. It can limit your choices during pregnancy, such as your choice of where to give birth. Um, and it can give you higher risk of, of things like gestational diabetes. Once you're pregnant, you can't change any of that. Um, and also, we know um, that if you're uh, overweight going into pregnancy, your child is more likely to be overweight when they're five. And if a child is overweight at five, they're more likely to be overweight as a teenager. And then they go on to become a, a parent who is overweight. And so you're perpetuating this cycle. Um, so, yeah, if you don't know about this, then it doesn't factor into your thinking. You, do, you don't think, oh, I'm thinking about becoming pregnant. I know all these things, so I will do this. What, this is what's important for me to do. You just think, I'll get pregnant, and, and then if there's anything I need to fix, I'll fix it. But I also think people rarely flip from not wanting to get pregnant one day to wanting to become pregnant the next. I think there's more of a, a gradual transition, perhaps moving from it would be the end of the world for me to get pregnant right now, through to ambivalence, or if it happens, it happens, or I'm not really trying not to get pregnant, um, through to, you know, then actively wanting to become pregnant um, in some cases. So I think there is an opportunity there. There is a time where people are transitioning, and we need people to know what they could do in that time once they start thinking about a pregnancy wanting one in the short term so that they can can then take steps to do um, what they need to do. Um, I think we, we know that people don't really know what to do. There's this excellent social media campaign a few years ago by Tommy's, the miscarriage charity, where they went around um, filming people on the streets and asked them, what would you, how do you plan a wedding? How do you plan for your holiday? And people were like, oh, you know, I'll research the weather and I'll book a flight or, you know, I'll find a dress or find a man or find a partner, this kind of thing. And when they asked them about how do you plan for pregnancy, there were these kind of like, oh, blank looks. I don't really know. Uh, is there something you need to do? Wow. Um, yeah, and also one of my recent studies, we asked, um, we were asking people whether or not they might be thinking about pregnancy um, in the next year or so. And even among those who said they were either currently trying to get pregnant or were thinking they'd probably try with, for a baby within the next year, less than half of them were doing something in preparation, even folic acid. So... Even amongst people who are thinking about pregnancy, they're not preparing. And there's this difference between planning to become pregnant and actually preparing to become pregnant. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what I've been focusing on um, in the fellowship. And I've been working with women and health professionals about how we can make these conversations more normal. What are the ways of opening the conversation? What are the settings which health professionals, how we might incorporate that into to primary care um, in a way that suits people of reproductive age and health professionals? That's yeah, it's I feel like there's so many different points at which, you know, an intervention or like that area for prevention can occur. But I also feel like a lot of what you were talking about comes down to kind of education on the topic. And, you know, that's something that we kind of have talked in different episodes of this podcast. Um, but I guess 
specifically pertaining to this area, you said that you've kind of in your fellowship have been looking at areas in clinics specifically where this kind of prevention could take place. But do you think that um, there's also maybe an element of being able to educate that in school? Or do you think that that's something like, I guess I find something that, you know, has been true is that unless it's directly affecting you or someone that you've, you know, had in your life that you care about, it's kind of hard to develop that sense of like really a care for that topic or to try and really understand it. So, you know, a lot of people will become pregnant eventually, but how do you, and where do you focus? Like, what is the key area? I don't know. Yeah. So I think, um, it needs to be tackled from a few different ways. I think we need a general societal awareness of this part of the reproductive life course um, and that there are things that you can do. So that sort of sets the, the bigger background picture of something that is okay to talk about, that you can talk about with your friends, with your health professionals and so on. Um, I think it's really important to get that message in early in schools um, as you say, it's about getting the right information at the right time and giving loads of information to 15-year-olds about things to do in advance of pregnancy is not going to be useful. Like you say, it's, it's not the right time. But getting a message to them that when, if and when, because obviously not everyone wants to have children, but if they want to have children, when they get to that time, just to remember there are things that they can do before they're pregnant that will have an impact on their pregnancy, on their child's health, even on their grandchild's health. And if you get that key message in, in schools, in teenagers, then hopefully when they get to the point of their life where they're thinking about whether or not they're going to start um, a family, then they're like, ah, oh, I remember. I, there's something I need to think about. They might not remember, oh, I'm supposed to take photic acid or the specifics, but they just know... I need, there's something I need to think about here. Let me look it up online. Um, let me speak to a friend. Let me speak to a health professional and so on. Um, so you've got that seed there. But then also, uh, from the health services side, we could um, incorporate it into either routine lifestyle checks. So if you're at the, the GP, sometimes you'll, they'll be there like, while you're here, um, do you smoke? Do you drink? Let's check your BMI. We could incorporate into that something around reproductive and menstrual health. So it could be something like, how are your periods? It could be, um, are you thinking of having a baby in the next year? Just something that opens that conversation and, and provides, that, again, that touch point. And the answer, you know, either way is, is useful for the person to consider and for the health professional so they can guide them either with contraception choices or um, with preconception. But then, obviously, we all know the health services are very overburdened right now um, and that might not always be possible in some situations it will and that's great um, but people are becoming more digitally health literate and sometimes things around sexual reproductive health people would prefer to have do something online that they have more autonomy over that they might feel is more confidential if they don't feel comfortable discussing aspects of, of sex and reproduction with anyone so I think also having sort of digital tools for people to be able to, to self-manage because a lot of this isn't 
for most people, particularly complex. It's general lifestyle advice around healthy diet, healthy weight, um, cutting out smoking, uh, those kind of things, making sure you're up to date with your immunizations or your cervical smear or those kind of things. Um, there are a subpopulation, people who have existing medical conditions, etc., for whom it would be important to speak to a health professional to talk about their medications or their disease control, for example, if you're diabetic or asthmatic or epileptic, those kind of things um it's helpful to have that discussion before you're pregnant so you can make sure that's all optimized before you enter pregnancy so i think it's having this sort of um uh, addressing it from many angles and actually we, we published a paper on that um in january in the lancet public health where we set out this model of um sort of societal level awareness education as well as health services and digital tools to provide that uh, context where it is routine and normal to talk about these things I love it yeah I love what you've said and I think you know my kind of my background is in genetics so my Mm. brain kind of goes to these places of all the different interconnected ways you know obviously when I study between your genes and how that affects everything else down the line. But I think that is so true about maybe everything and a lot of different topics, especially in health, because sort of what I'm getting from what you've said is just that a lot of the topics to focus on that will help with reproductive health and help with this sort of gap period of when you're planning to be pregnant or just in advance of that is having an understanding of what makes you healthy and and what will help you and your day-to-day like it comes down to exercise it comes down to eating the right foods for your body it comes down to all of these different topics that you know obviously relate to reproduction but also just relate to having a healthy lifestyle um yeah I mean there are very few things that are absolutely unique to that period so obviously there's the folic acid recommendation it's recommended you take it ideally at least two months before you become pregnant Um, that helps to get the blood folate levels up high enough Uh, and we know we've known since 1991 I think that um, folic acid will reduce the risk of neural tube defects so that's when the spinal cord doesn't close properly Um, and, and yet we still have you know it's only about one in three people who take it before they're pregnant Um, And shockingly, it doesn't get better if you're on a second pregnancy. Somehow we're still managing not to inform um, women that, you know, okay, well, you didn't take it before this time, you're taking it now, that's great. Next time, (laughs) try to take it beforehand. We're still not doing that. It's actually lower in second pregnancies. Um, And many, many countries around the world have been fortifying staple foods with folate for many, many years. We don't in the UK. Um, It's recently been agreed that we will, but... We're only going to fortify white flour and not at a high enough dose. So people are still going to be needing to take the folic acid tablets beforehand. And the reason it's so important to do it before is because the neural tube closes so early in pregnancy that actually by the time you realise you're pregnant, even if you start taking it then, you've probably missed the boat. Like It's not going to do any harm. You should still take it. But for it to be most effective, you need to be taking it beforehand. Before. Mm. Yeah, that's... It's um, it kind of brings also up this topic that I was really, you know, interested to hear from you about is just in your career, you know, are there certain misconceptions that you find? I mean, obviously, there are different elements of that. I think now there's misconceptions because of, you know, a lack of education in in different areas of the schooling system. Absolutely. It comes from different parts, though. I mean, 
technology is, you know, very useful for a lot of things, but it's also, it can, I think, be harmful if you are finding things or you're Googling things or you're, you don't know what you're looking up or you're diagnosing yourself or, you know, it, it, people just want to know and they want to be able to have an answer and they want to be able to um, make a plan, I guess, or instruct themselves, bring comfort to themselves. But I, I guess I wonder, you know, misconceptions I feel like can come from there. And what have you found in your career um, in your research in, in clinic, what are certain things that you feel like you would love to address or maybe that you're constantly, you know, addressing with, with certain groups of people? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess across section reproductive health, there's so many misconceptions, um, so many around contraception and what it does and doesn't do. Uh, and it's not, in some cases, it's not that the information isn't out there or available, but it's not... It's not in the right format. So we haven't got enough people on TikTok putting good content rather than anecdotal content. Um, Not to belittle anyone's individual experience, but one person's experience isn't reflective of um, necessarily everybody else's. Um, I think specific to the work around preconception, I think the thing that we grapple with most is it gets dismissed as... Well, most people don't plan their pregnancy. Most pregnancies are unplanned. So it's pointless even trying to talk about preconception health. And as I said earlier, yeah, globally, around 45% of pregnancies are unplanned. Uh, In the UK, our most recent estimate, which is over a decade old, is also that 45% of pregnancies are unplanned. So that, that is big, and we need to do something about that. But if you flip it, more than half of pregnancies are planned. So... We do have a huge potential to be reaching people. Um, and I think we kind of it, it's too easy sometimes for people to brush it aside. As people don't plan their pregnancies, we can't do anything about this. And I don't think that's right. Um, I also think in terms of unplanned pregnancy, um, and this is a comment that really stuck with me when I was trying to get my, my current research funded, uh, one of the interviews on the panel basically dismissed the issue of unplanned pregnancy as, well, this is just about contraception in the kind of, if you women would just take your pills, this wouldn't be a problem. And I think that's just so naive that having free contraception should mean that we have no unplanned pregnancies. And I think both with preconception and unplanned pregnancy, there's a real tendency to individualise these issues and make it the woman's fault if she has an unplanned pregnancy. Um, And I don't think that's the case. I, I mean, our contraception services are... Uh, struggling. They have had funding cuts for more than the last decade. There aren't enough um, sexual reproductive health doctors who are specialists in contraception. Um, and the way that we commission and pay for our contraception services actually costs doctors to provide that service. And so it's unviable for them to be offering certain contraceptions. So we're making it more and more difficult for people to access contraception and then hitting them over the head when we say, oh, now you've got an unplanned pregnancy. So, um, but yeah, lots of issues, I think. But I, I think I don't want to make it an individual solution to the problem by saying, well, everyone should have a plan. I think that's an important part of it. But in order for people to have a plan, we also need that to be something that society is supportive of and um, is normal. And a plan is no good if you can't enact it. So we need to provide 
the services such that when people don't want to get pregnant, they are able to not get pregnant. Yeah. And I think, I mean, back to when, you know, earlier in this episode when I was sort of saying, you know, I'm just, I'm really, really excited to have you here because of the sort of holistic viewpoint that you take on this subject. I really appreciate that. And I really think it's so important. And I feel like we've talked about that even further is this topic requires, as you said, society to kind of take a, a, a step back and maybe consider the different elements that are a part of it and the different factors that play into it. And, you know, I agreed that comment kind of really bugs me as well <laughs> because, I mean, for different reasons, but, you know, one example of that is, is even if you have access to contraceptives, that's not sort of the only factor. I mean, something that is just so real in this topic is that it really oftentimes comes down to the person, like the woman who, who is getting pregnant. And as much as it's her, you know, her, she's, get, she's the one that's going to be carrying this baby, you know, ultimately, hopefully it's, it's her decision. There's an, a whole other party that's involved in that process. And I guess I wonder, specific to this, you know, topic, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of people that do also want to, you know, give their opinion and get involved. And I think it comes down to society being able to say, listen, it's not just on the woman that, you know, is getting pregnant to take the steps to get there. Um, and, and I think it, going forwards, it'd be helpful to have the role more incorporated for the partner who's involved in that mm -hmm. um and i guess i wonder do you feel like in your research and in your clinic and your practice do, are there certain kind of points in that where you see that there could be the inclusion of that other person to help out and to help with the planning process and to to alleviate some of the burden or the the weight that the woman or the person getting pregnant has to carry yeah, absolutely. So I think it's very easy to focus on the woman and overlook the role of the man. Um, and definitely research in this area has lagged behind, but there is more and more being done on uh, the role of the father, um, where we're talking about heterosexual couples, um, in in the, the child's long-term health. So uh, overweight fathers have overweight children. The father's mental health before the baby is born is important for the child's mental health. Um, you know, there are genetic and epigenetic factors going on to affect the sperm quality. The sperm and the semen quality affect the environment that the um, child is conceived in. And you know, these things can have effects on, on the baby while it's developing and after. So there is this increasing recognition uh, of the role in, in that sort of biological pathway. So back to that sort of message in schools, the message is there for everyone. Every one of you, if you're thinking about becoming a parent in the future, it's important to think about your health beforehand. Um, I think where it comes to contraception discussions and decisions, this is a really interesting area because, as you say, ultimately it's the woman who's going to be taking them, and so ultimately it has to be her decision. Um, but it would be, I think, good if there is a sort of shared decision-making process. Um, I've done a bit of work around reproductive autonomy with a particular way of measuring it. This is one of the aspects of measurement that, that I work on. 
Um, and in that, we look at sort of different aspects of reproductive autonomy, decision-making, communication and freedom from coercion. And what I found really interesting is that in the um, decision-making area, we tend to see more shared decision-making around contraception and whether to become pregnant and whether or not you would have an abortion in people who are married um, or in long-term relationships than in people who are not. And that makes sense. Um, in terms of the scale, it measures, it counts that as women having lower autonomy because they are not the ones who have final say. Um, but I think sort of the, the distinction of sharing the burden of the discussion and the agreement is helpful. Um, it's very rare for a person to come in for a contraception appointment and bring their partner with them. But it doesn't mean to say that conversations haven't happened. And I think that is something that we can encourage, as long as by inviting the partner into the space, we don't limit women's autonomy. Some evidence from Malawi, where they were trying to improve uptake of contraception by bringing men into the discussion. And whereas before, women had been able to access it discreetly, to some extent, without their partner knowing, particularly you know, if you can have an injection, there's no visible sign that that, that 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 has happened. In some instances, bringing men to the discussions then limited women's ability to access contraception. That might not be true everywhere, but I think it's an important thing to, to be aware of as well. But, I mean, the underlying principle of men uh, or partners being involved in the discussions and decisions but it's still being you know, the woman's ultimate decision, her bodily autonomy, yeah, that's still crucial. Yeah, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head with that one, um, for sure. It's, it's, yeah, it's such an important topic, and, and I kind of look forward to, through my career, investigating that more, the role of you know, not just the woman, but the man or the partner of course, um, in making these different decisions. And I think we've touched on society a few times. Um, And I think that's also really, really important. We've seen massive falls in fertility in Europe over the last few decades. Um, So Italy, I think their um, total fertility rates, the average number of children born to a woman in a lifetime, something like 1.1 or 1.3. So their population is crashing. Um, and they're not unique. It, it, most places in Europe, we are below what's called replacement level. So in order for our population to stay stable in terms of births and deaths, um, the average number of children a woman would have in her lifetime has to be just above two, something like 2.4. We've been below two for, for many years. Um, and, and that is because society has not recognised the changes in societal structures that we need since women have become an integral part of the workforce, it is virtually impossible for a two-parent working family um, to manage in today's structures. Our childcare is so expensive that, that women have to give up work, or someone, and usually it's the woman, has to give up work for the first few years of a child's life to care for that child before school. And so that's having a massive disin- disincentive on, on women also as well on couples, because when we ask people, um, when you're thinking about having a baby, what are the sorts of things that you think about beforehand, what's important, and it's things like either education or their job, like getting to a certain point, Um, obviously it's having a partner that you want to have a a child with, Um, it's finances, it's housing, it's those kind of things that are influencing people's decisions about whether or not to have children, Um, and so it's becoming, I think, more common to not have children by choice, um, or to have fewer children. Um, 
Yeah, sorry, there was something else I was going to say. It's just slipped my mind. No, um, yeah, I think... Oh, I, yeah, sorry, it's to come back. The um, climate anxiety. Like, that is something now that really feeds, particularly into younger generations, thoughts about whether or not to, to have children or how many children to have is, what are we doing to our climate? What's it going to be like for our children or our grandchildren? Yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to say, I, I had a friend the other day who um, kind of found... Um, he was he he had, you know I told him about what I was studying at school, and he was like, oh, you know I would I would have thought that because of what you study you would not want to have kids going forwards, and that kind of I mean I was like mm-hmm. jarred, I didn't even know what to say in that moment, but it's so true. I mean these conversations are totally being had, and they're important ones to have, um, and as you said, it's so important to kind of think about, you know, we've had advancements um, in certain areas in terms of giving equal access to different things to women as well as other areas, but there has to be kind of also advancements in society to be able to support that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, hopefully going forward, that's going to be, you know, climate at the center of that and and society kind of covering how to navigate that. That's, I guess, the hope. Um but my hope, but I'm wondering, you know, going forwards in your career, um, in your research and in your practice, what are kind of your big goals or, or what you're kind of hoping to see um, in this kind of space? What are you hoping for? Um, so I'd like it to be routine and normal for people to talk about preparing for pregnancy um, it's you know I'm not suggesting everyone can go up to each other on the street and go are you going to have a baby are you going to have a baby soon because that's you know nobody likes that um, but either in the context of getting that education in early so that people know when they get to that time in their life they can look for for information or speak to a health professional um, getting it in into a range of health professionals sort of routine because once these things become routine they become less scary um, and I think some people are worried in, in the interviews I did with health professionals they're like oh I'm not sure what to say about preconception care and then actually they list all the things you could say in preconception care because as we've just said it's not like there's many things that are unique it's general good lifestyle advice um, I think uh, finding a, a digital um tool for people to be able to do this that's something that I'm working on we've developed an initial platform um, that will it takes people through some questions it then gives them some feedback about how likely they are to have a pregnancy in the next year and then depending on that advice for contraception or advice for preconception or advice for both as well as sort of general advice around consent all links to, to sort of external advice and we want to build that out to to become a platform that people can then uh, work on their plan, develop a plan, because I guess my ultimate kind of goal is that everyone has the information and the agency to be able to think about these aspects of their reproductive health. And I suppose I'm starting on quite a small area, but this is just one part of people's reproductive life course. There are so many other aspects of sexual reproductive health that um, it would be great to build out into, um, so that they can so they can know that these are things that they can think about and that they can make choices for themselves uh, and that services are provided in a way um, that enables them to meet those goals. So I really would love to see everyone having the number of children they want, whether that's none or four. It's just about empowering people to to make that choice and um, actually the ability to enact it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so great and... and 
I'm really, I feel really excited to see kind of, you know, everything that you do and, and to be able to, to watch that. It's going to be so cool.